What's wrong, Frankie? Nothing. Nothing? <laughs> Why, this mangled copy of Browner's Gothic Grammar would tell a different story. Just these darn derivations. <laughs> I know they may look daunting, but with a little perseverance and Werner's Law, you can tackle most any problem. What's Werner's Law? You don't know? They didn't teach us. <laughs> well, Werner's Law is a voicing rule of early Germanic. A very important voicing rule. So why don't I tell you, and you, all about it. The story of Werner's Law begins in 1749 with the birth of Sir William Jones in England. Jones was a scholar of Greek and Latin who, even as a boy, found that he could learn ancient languages with the greatest of ease. Through his brilliance and hard work, Jones's knowledge of the classical world surpassed even that of his teachers, who found that they did not know exactly what to do with him apart from letting him continue to read on his own. But alas, Jones was not able to put his skills in philology to any kind of practical use, and he would have to choose another field if he was going to support himself through life. Things became so hopeless, in fact, that William Jones found it necessary to enter law school and be trained for the bar. Though he graduated with honors and a great breadth of knowledge of jurisprudence, his love of ancient and far-off cultures never waned. And so, when an opportunity arose to fill a judicial post in India, he jumped at the chance and was off to the subcontinent. India though a British colony at the time, was still a great mystery to most Westerners, and those who went there had no idea what they could expect. But Jones was the adventurous sort, and he made his journey there his greatest adventure. Soon after his arrival in Bengal, in the northeastern part of the country, William Jones established the Royal Asiatic Society in the hopes of enlightening the world about the history and culture of India. Poking around for ancient texts, Jones found that they were not difficult to come by and that several languages were preserved there whose origins reached farther back into antiquity than anything that could be found in Europe. One of these languages was called Sanskrit and Jones set his mind to becoming proficient in that most revered of classical languages of India. In his readings, Jones discovered something fascinating and unexpected about Sanskrit. The words and the grammar of that language were not dissimilar to those of Latin and Greek, and what was more, they seemed more complete, less degraded. Jones theorized that Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit had all come from some common ancestor and then developed along different lines. This fascinating new idea was made public by him at the next meeting of the Royal Asiatic Society. Jones's idea took a while to catch on, but when Sanskrit became more widely known in the West and other modern languages began to be studied more in depth, the idea of a proto-language other than Hebrew became more and more popular. By the early 19th century, the term Indo-European had been created, referring to a language family spanning from India all the way to Europe and encompassing such diverse languages as Latin, Greek, Hindi, Welsh, French, German, Icelandic, Russian, and many others, reshaping our conception of language completely. Can one little boy change the world? I guess he can, if he's William Jones.
Well, maybe. But you probably don't know how certain consonants shifted from Proto-Indo-European to Germanic. Gee. No. <laughs> uh, well, let me tell you about the next important people in this story. The Brothers Grimm. The early 19th century was a busy time for linguists, as they now had a new and exciting framework for investigation, and many language families had never really been given much serious consideration before. Though many of the most important discoveries in Indo-European were made by the noted philologists Rasmus Christian Rask and Franz Bopp, much of the information that came to light about the Germanic languages was codified by the Brothers Grimm. These were the same Brothers Grimm who compiled the most famous collection of European fairy tales, telling of the dangers of bears in the woods, wolves in the woods, and little girls in the woods. In the second edition of his Deutsche Grammatik, Jakob Grimm, using data from both Rask and his own work, formed what was later to be known as Grimm's Law, or the First Consonant Shift. In the development from Indo-European to Germanic, he observed, a very significant change had occurred in the shape of consonants, particularly those labeled stop consonants, that is, consonants that temporarily stop the flow of air completely. Exactly why this change occurred is not known, and numerous theories have been put forth to explain its causes. Concentrating on the results of the change, however, Grimm noted that Indo-European p, t, and k became Germanic f, th, and h later h, thus explaining the connection between fatherly fish and paternal Pisces, between the House of Horns and Casa Cornuum, and between the pronoun tu in Latin and thou in English. Grimm's Law explained the changes in hundreds of words and was justifiably hailed as one of the great discoveries in historical linguistics. But unfortunately, there were also many words that did not develop according to Grimm's Law. The Indo-European root ocus, for example, which occurs in the word ocular, of the eye, should have shifted to a form with h, thus och or auch. This, however, did not happen. The Germanic forms always have voiced sounds, a voiced sound being one that uses the larynx, as in voiced z versus voiceless s. Gothic has augo, Old English had eage, and Modern English has i, where y is actually a variant of an ancient g. Though one might expect Grimm to have reacted harshly to critics of his theory, which worked so well in most situations, Grimm in fact recognized the shortcomings of his law, and hoped that someone would come along to find out why there were so many discrepancies, why P's were becoming B's, why T's were becoming D's, and why K's were becoming G's. What, he asked himself, had caused the voicing in these consonants? solve his problem? No, he didn't, Frankie. And he died alone. It looks like we'll never find the answer. <laughs> well, if we don't, I know Danish philologist Carl Werner will. Who's Carl Werner? Why don't you ask him yourself? Hello, I'm Carl Werner, and I discovered Werner's Law. Carl Werner was a man well-trained in Indo-European linguistics. 
1876, he decided to address the problem of the badly shifted consonants, but was slowed down somewhat by a slight cold. Werner decided to rest a while on his couch. He relaxed with one of his favorite books, Franz Bopp's Comparative Grammar, which was something of a Bible to 19th century linguists. There, as he was drifting off to sleep and had almost reached the freedom of total unconsciousness, the answer hit him. And then he went back to sleep without writing the answer down. By a miracle, Werner remembered his solution when he awoke. In looking at Sanskrit forms and comparing them to Germanic ones, Werner noticed that the placement of stress affected how Indo-European consonants were shifting. He then summarized his findings in an article in the journal Zeitschrift für Vergleichende Sprachforschung, which he modestly called an exception to the first consonant shift. The new Werner's Law said the following. When the consonants P, T and K occurred in the middle of a word, they would become the voiced consonants B, D and G, and not F, Th and H, as predicted by Grimm. This shift from voiceless to voiced sounds occurred unless the Indo-European stress immediately preceded the consonant in question. If stress was there, P, T and K shifted as Grimm had predicted. Germanic S could also be affected. Where stress preceded it, it remained S. Where it was elsewhere, S changed to Z and then R. This is known as rhoticism. That is, the turning of an S into a Greek rho. Rhoticism accounts for the change between the Latin ending us and the Norse ending ur. It also, within Latin, explains the relationship between corpus and corporation. Werner's law resembles to an extent Jespersen's rule, which, though erratic, nevertheless explains the differences in voicing between English pairs such as exercise and exist, excellent and examine. Werner's law explained the problem of oculus algo, as well as connecting Latin cutis, skin, and English hide, Sanskrit pitar, and Old English fatter. The TH in modern English father is a later development. And that was the point where I discovered it, and it was very exciting. But then I wasn't sure. But after going through a lot of examples, I really couldn't see there was anything wrong with it. That's the way with uh, laws, you know, they, they have some exceptions, but in the end, I think this one was all right. The law finally explained the phenomenon known as grammatical change. In the past tense of strong verbs, there was sometimes an alternation between consonants in the singular and plural forms. Old English, for example, had teach, I pulled, but tugon, we pulled. Cheas, I chose, but kuron, we chose. At one point, part of the conjugation had had stress on the root syllable, other parts on other syllables, producing the above forms, as well as the alternation in modern English was were, we can therefore reconstruct proto-Germanic forms such as tauhi tuhun, kausi kusun, wasi weisun. 
Sounds at the beginnings of words were generally not affected by Ferner's law, though some have drawn connections between Latin com, meaning with, and the Germanic prefix ga, which can mean, among other things, together. Though Werner's law allowed us to understand more about etymology, it was most significant in that it introduced the concept of free stress into studies of Germanic. That is, the idea that early Germanic did not necessarily have root stress across the board, as in German, but had variable stress, as in the difference between the words vary and variability. Werner's law raises some interesting questions. One. Did the law operate only in the Proto-Germanic era, or did its period of operation extend into the West, North, and East Germanic eras? 2. Why did Werner's law, like Grimm's law, seem to work erratically? Some words appear in different Germanic languages, having been affected differently by Werner's law. German, for example, has Eisen and Hase, while English has Iron and Hair. Gothic has Huchrus, with a rule-governed loss of N, while English has hunger, while Dutch has base, English has berry, and Middle High German has both Mahen and Magen, which both mean poppy. 3. Why did Gothic not have Werner's Law in the past tense of strong verbs, as in Old English teach tugun, ceas kurun, was werun? Gothic has tauch tuchun, kaus kusun, was weisun with no sign of Werner's law. The same applies with the so-called Jan verbs, such as Hausjan, which is the equivalent of the rhoticized English verb to hear. Was the suffix Jan stressed in Gothic? Even if it wasn't stressed in Gothic, the discrepancy indicates a change in stress in some parts of the Germanic world beyond the Proto-Germanic period. Four, why do some verbal endings in Germanic not match? The Indo-European third-person singular verbal ending contains a t. This ending shifts to th in Germanic by Grimm's law. Thus, bindeth, he, she connects, or binds. If the verb is stressed on the first syllable, Werner's law would give us bindid in West Germanic with a voiced ending. German has bindet, but this t is from a West Germanic d. In Old English, however, the form is bindeth which implies stress on the second syllable, since the ending is voiceless. Do Old English verbs have a different stress pattern than other West Germanic verbs, indicating a split in stress patterns as late as West Germanic? 5. Could Werner's Law operate on different parts of the vocabulary at different times? Could, for example, Gothic verbs have been the first, or maybe the last class, to be affected by the law? 6. Did the results of Werner's law always need to be indicated in writing? Or does the absence of orthographic clues point to the law being so automatic, in some parts of the vocabulary at any rate, that no written clues were necessary? Could Hausian have been pronounced automatically as a semi-rhoticized Hausian? The overall question is, did free stress, or elements of free stress, persist in West Germanic so that Werner's law could operate longer than we think it did? Could a shift to across-the-board root accentuation have started in Proto-Germanic and then continued, by analogy, and then only gradually, in West, North, and East Germanic? Gothic, for example, might have had root stress, as we expect from a Germanic language, though it is hard to tell. Gothic is a language that preserves numerous syllables apart from the root, and it seems that any of them could have full vowels or diphthongs, 
This differs substantially from the situation in German where many fewer vowels are allowed. The more items that are allowed in different syllables, the less differentiation there is between kinds of syllables. The less differentiation, the more of an opportunity there is for any syllable to carry stress. These are questions that have puzzled philologists for 130 years. Karl Werner created a law that shook the world of those people who happened to read the Zeitschrift für vergleichende Sprachforschung. Way to go, Karl! Wow, that was an amazing story! I learned so much! Did you? Well, that's just great. You see, Frankie, the more you know about the rules of early Germanic prosody, the more rewarding life can be. Now, how about an ice cream cone? Gee, that would be swell. But what about Mr. Werner? Oh, I'm sure he's fine. After I checked the data from Old High German, I decided to relax a bit with my wife. Later in the day, we played some cards. Uh, gin rummy, I think. And I won three games and lost two. Well, it, one was interrupted, so you couldn't really tell that I had... And then we found uh, this box, and it had this thing in it, uh, what you call it. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but we, we found one, and it was 